God's word beginning in Luke 8 verse 1 says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path, and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who hears, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd, and he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You may have heard this story, I've heard it before, but Jonathan Lehman recounts it. It's of a man named Richard Ilelu. He really had no interest in the Bible. He was, in fact, a Muslim who lived in Nigeria, but he did enjoy the Bible that was given to him because the Bible had nice, good, crisp pages that could be rolled up to hold his joints. And so he used the pages, page after page, rolling them up so that he could use them. And yet one day, after he'd rolled one, he decided, I don't want this right now, so he put it in his pocket. Well, that night when he couldn't sleep, he pulled that joint back out of his pocket, unrolled it, and read, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. For the next three weeks, he could not get that verse out of his mind. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he started talking to the person who'd given him the Bible in the first place. And after many conversations, he came to trust in Christ. Yet one verse changed this man's life, transformed him, transformed his life so much that his family, even his father, hated him, wanted him to die for this change. But He had tasted and seen that God was good. 
And he no longer cared so much what his family thought because he realized he had a father in heaven. You know, the word of God is transformative. It is powerful. And this morning, Jesus shows us four ways that his word is powerful. Because God's word, it creates life. God's word, it divides and reveals. God's word demands a response. God's word reshapes our values. And that's what we see here as we look at these verses. Because in the first three verses, we see that God's word creates life. Because Jesus is going around. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's telling people that he, the king, has come. And we see the life that comes from that. What does he mean he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Well, he's saying he is the real king of this world. And he has come to this earth to tell the good news that the king has come back to restore the world to the way it should be. And so he's shown that. He's shown that the world is being restored because he's cast out demons. He's healed sick. He's given forgiveness of sins. He's brought the dead back to life. That's what the world is going to be like when the king is fully on his throne. And so he's shown it by his actions, and he's showing it through his words that he, the king, is here. And he's going to show it more because he, the king, will die for his servants, conquering sin, death, and the devil. Well, here Luke gives us two snapshots of this kingdom that's come because he reminds us of the twelve who are following him. And we noted before, and we looked at the twelve, in this group, are those who would normally be political enemies. There's Simon the Zealot, and there's Matthew the tax collector. Simon the Zealot is a part of the group, the Zealots who want no Roman rule. They want to have a coup, overthrow the Romans. Well, the tax collectors want the Romans to stay in power. It's like starting a group and going, you know what we should do? We should get the most progressive socialists in our country and the most right-wing Tea Party conservative and that should be how we get together to make a new group. Like, well, pfft. That's like putting a gasoline bottle or jar, can, and then throwing a match in. Hey, how's this going to work? And yet Jesus, because he gives new life through him, brings peace with God through forgiveness of sins. That then leads to peace with others. It creates new life that says this is more important than what I used to think was the most important thing. Not only that, the second snapshot of this new kingdom that brings life is the healing and life that Jesus brings to women. You may have noticed all these mentionings of women in these first three verses. You know, sadly, in their culture, men viewed women very negatively. There was a prayer, a Jewish prayer at that time that said, I thank you, O God, King of the universe, that you did not make me a woman. You know, if there was a court that needed to call in witnesses. Women were not allowed to testify in their courts. And yet Jesus not only associates with women, he lists them here as important followers of hers, his. In fact, many of these women are listed here because they are going to be faithful to him all the way to the cross and then showing up to the grave. Where are all the men? They all fled. They didn't go to the tomb first. It was the women who... God allowed to be the first eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. And Jesus did some amazing things. This one woman, Mary, he brought new life because she was in bondage to seven demons. This woman, Joanna, who is she? Well, she was part of Herod's, she was the wife of Herod's administrator. You know, Jesus, he preached 
the dangers of pursuing after wealth, but he didn't denigrate the wealthy in and of themselves. Here, someone who would have been extremely wealthy and powerful, and yet she is one of Jesus' followers. And Susanna as well. And all of these women are helping to support Jesus as he and his disciples do not have jobs that they're undertaking to raise money. And so they're supporting them and giving them funds. They are giving funds so that they can continue to proclaim the life-giving message that Jesus is the life and his words bring life. And this is really nothing new. God's word has always created life. Life here, Jesus casting out demons, bringing the dead back to life. Life by uniting men and women, the rich and the poor, political revolutionaries and status quo. Life in how was this universe made? Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He speaks and his word creates a new universe. When he speaks, even new life comes into power, into being. And so we have to ask, do we trust the power of God's word in our life? For us, those of us who are parents, what's going to produce change in our children? Is it going to be our outburst of anger? Is it going to be another long lecture? Or is it going to be pouring into them the words of God? Now, sometimes those words have strong admonitions we need to give. Sometimes those words have life. And yet, it's not our wisdom that our children need. It's God's word. And what do we need here in this church? We need God's word. You don't need my wit and wisdom. We would have finished about five minutes ago. We need to hear God's word. We need to know what is he saying to us. The reality, though, is God's word does not always produce the change in people that we want. And Jesus explains that by giving this parable. He gives this parable showing that God's word has a dual purpose. Because God's word, in verse, we see in verses 4 through 15, divides and reveals. You know, there's these great crowds coming, and so Jesus tells them this parable. In verses 5 through 8, he kind of gives the parable. 9 and 10, he explains why he speaks in parables. And then verses 11 through 15, he explains it. Well, this parable would have been something very common to them. A sower goes out to sow seed in his field. This was a pre-industrial world. There's no tractors. There's no seed planters. So a man would have a bag slung over his shoulder with seed, and he'd reach his hand in, then he'd broadcast it over the field. And he'd reach back in and keep walking and broadcast it over the field. And then after he'd done the whole field, he would go get his plow and plow it up, turning sod back over the seed. And Jesus talks about four different types of soil that this seed lands on. Well, first, some seeds land on the path that people would walk on. And as it stays on the path, birds come in and they eat it up. Now, we need to pause and say, in three of these soils, no fruit comes. No fruit that goes all the way to maturity. But Jesus is not indicting the sower. He's indicting the soil. He's saying it's the soil, not the sower, that is the problem. Well, the second one is seed that falls on rocks. Now, the image is not like a big pile of rocks that you have on the side. The image is that in their land, it's a very bland word, but in their land, often there'd be a layer of limestone just under the soil. And you wouldn't necessarily see it, but as soon as the seeds began to grow, it hit that bedrock of limestone 
would have no moisture and then die once the heat came. Third, the other seed fell amongst thorns. There the sower wouldn't necessarily know the thorns are there, but their seeds are dormant as well. And then once things to grow, start to grow, the seeds of the good plant and the seeds of the thorn start fighting for nutrients, minerals, the sun, and the weeds slowly choke it out. Fourth and lastly, Jesus talks about the seed that falls upon good earth. Here there's no birds coming to eat it. There's abundant moisture. There's no competition for weeds. And so this grows a hundredfold. And then Jesus concludes by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And that is Jesus' major point throughout all this section. It's as we read in Isaiah 55, 3 earlier. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Now anyone who has ears that work is hearing, but Jesus is calling more than just the hearing with the ear, but also the recognizing, reflecting, applying, and obeying the words. I remember being a child, going to bed, and it's amazing. Each child, once they go to bed, ten seconds later, their mouth goes, I don't have enough water. And I'd sit there in my bed, I'd be crying, Mom, Dad, I need a glass of water. Nothing would happen. So I'd say it a little louder. And then I'd say it a little louder. Nothing would happen. Were my parents not hearing me? Well, now I think they were. I've kind of caught on to them. 30 years later, they heard me just fine, but they didn't want to listen for probably very good reasons. And so they didn't respond. You know, we can hear people saying things, but not let it affect us or change us. And Jesus is saying, you have ears to hear. Don't just hear what I'm saying. Do something. Obey what I'm saying. Well, here the disciples are saying, well, what, what does this parable mean? And then Jesus says something that's rather shocking. He says in verse 10, well, you've been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. However, I speak in parables so they don't know. Now, that's often the opposite of the way people understand parables. People go, well, Jesus spoke in parables because he wanted to use wonderful illustrations so everyone would understand. Well, Jesus is actually saying the opposite. He's saying, I speak in parables so that those who I want to know, those who I give to know will know, and others actually will not. Well, what is going on? Does Jesus not want some people to understand his message? Well, you have to realize these words are being quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And you may know Isaiah 6, famous chapter in Isaiah, where Isaiah has been called in to the presence of the Lord, and he's seen the glory of the Lord and the cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. And then the Lord says, Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I will. And then he says, God commissions them and says, Well, you'll go, but they're not going to understand. They're going to hear, but they won't respond. Well, why did God give Isaiah this commission to go and tell people who weren't going to listen? Well, if you read through the book of Isaiah, it's not because God didn't want them to return, didn't want them to repent. He has for generation after generation called them to repent and said, look, you all need to turn back. Even the beginning of Isaiah 1, turn so that your sins may be made white as snow, though they're scarlet now. And yet they have for so long rejected God is now saying, okay, You've reached the point where I'm no longer going to allow you to return. You're still going to hear the words, but it is too late. So I want you to hear, but not understand. And that's really the same thing here. As you read through the Gospels, Jesus interacts with anyone who comes to him. 
Here are crowds. But how many people really want to know what Jesus meant? Only 12. You know, sadly, many people come to Jesus because they want to be blessed by him. While he's there giving out the bread, as he's doing miracles, as he's casting out demons, oh yeah, we want Jesus. But then he says some hard things, and what happens? The crowd goes away. They don't really want to know and follow Jesus. Because if they'd wanted to, they would have come and said, what does this mean? And he would have revealed it to them. And thus we're seeing that God's word always divides and reveals people's true nature. Those who truly want to hear and see, will they keep seeking after God until they know it? And God will give it to them. Those who just want to kind of keep God and Jesus at a close distance, they think. You know, I don't want to get too close. I just kind of want you close enough to bless me. But I don't want to get close enough to have to do all those hard things you say. He says they hear the word but will never understand it. They are the ones who hear but don't hear, who see but never understand. And the truth is that none of us would have wanted to know more except God gave us a heart that wanted him. That's what he even says here. To you, talking to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of God. God gives us grace even to desire to know him. And Jesus then transitioned to explain this parable. And he tells them, well, the seed in the parable, that represents the word of God. And that seed, the word of God, is cast. But then there's four different types of responses based on the soil that it lands on. Yeah, first, the soil is the one that is on the road and the birds come. And he says, that's like the devil who comes and takes it away. Peter tells us, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He swoops in like birds and takes the seed of God's word before it can even penetrate the soil and bring any life. He wants death. He does not want any life at all. Well, second, Jesus says the seed on the rock depicts those who immediately receive the word with joy. They're excited. However, there's no root in their life. Thus, so they believe, believe for a while. Once persecution comes, they quickly fall away. God's word is only affecting their surface of their life. And like many in the crowds, they haven't really sunk their roots deep down into Jesus. Thus, as soon as any trouble comes, they abandon him and wither up. Well, third, verse 14, the seeds that fell among the thorns represent people who hear the word of God, but it gets choked out by one of three things. Now, it's important to realize that none of these things are necessarily bad. Rather, it's that these are good things that have taken the level of God. And when any good gift of God takes the place of what God should provide for us, it chokes out our faithfulness to happen. As well, think about weeds. You know, you don't walk outside and have nothing but nice grass, and the next day you walk out and there's weeds all over the yard may seem that way sometimes, but it's often very slow. It takes weeks that the weeds slowly overtake and overcome the yard. It's almost imperceptible. In the same way, there's often not this dramatic rejection of the word of God. It's more like a boa constrictor that slowly tightens and tightens until the life is no longer there as it is constricted it all out. 
And so one of the things that can choke the word, well, first, Jesus says, the seed gets choked out by the anxieties and cares of this life. Now, anxieties can exist for many reasons. We can be anxious for our finances, our health, our children, our relationships, our jobs. And those can be good things. Yet, all of those can grab and control our emotions, our energy, our resources. You know, take something very neutral like a hobby. A hobby can be a wonderful way to enjoy God's world, to relax. And yet that hobby can grow until all of your time and energy and thoughts are going to that. And you find more and more you can't even concentrate. Even here, all you can think about is, what am I going to plan next for the hobby? When am I going to do the next thing? And slowly it chokes out the good, the best, God and His Word. The good becomes your God. Well, second, Jesus says riches can choke out the seed of God's Word. You know, money, it can draw us, excites us. And then, as we pursue just a little more, we need just a little more, we realize that is getting all of my attention. Well, third, Jesus says, the pleasures of this life can choke out the seed of God's word. John Piper writes, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in and of themselves. These are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. And so all of these can choke out God's word. And yet fourth, verse 15, it describes the seed which fell upon good soil and then bore fruit a hundredfold. Now notice he explains it because in contrast to verse 13 that falls away, he says they hold fast to the word. The vital nature of holding fast to God's word is seen throughout scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Or Hebrews 3, 14-15. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so there has to be this holding fast to God's word, not just an initial response. Well, then there's a contrast to the third scene in verse 14 that gets choked out because this one, the good seed on sorry the good soil perseveres in faith with patience james 1 uses that same word but he translated steadfastness he says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness same word and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect 
and complete lacking in nothing. And so we don't just hear God's word and have an initial response. We need to hold it fast and patiently endure, letting that fruit mature. And so Jesus' words here show that he realizes many come to him, but they come superficially. And this should really cause us to rethink what is successful ministry. And I don't know what circles you've run in growing up or at other times of your life, but there can often be this re- desire to know, well, how many people were baptized that weekend? Well, how many people went forward? Well, how many people made a profession of faith? How many people at that conference committed themselves to ministry? Well, those can all be good things, and we should seek those. But we can so much want to seek the immediate, outward, visible response that we haven't taken into account what Jesus is saying here. Because he's saying it's not just what you can see immediately, it's what you can see in the long term. So the question shouldn't be how many people were baptized then, but how many of those are still following a year later? Not how many people walked the aisle then, but how many people five years later are still wanting to follow and hold fast to the word? You know, God calls not just for a temporary response, even with joy, but a long-term faithful obedience to him. But Jesus' main challenge here is really to his hearers. You know, he's calling us. Have we made professions of faith in the past, but haven't led to real change and fruit? Are there good things in our life even now that, like weeds, are slowly choking out what is best in our commitment to God? And this is so important that Jesus expands on it even more in verses 16 through 18, because he shows that God's word demands response. Verse 16, it says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so those who enter may see the light. I found this section a little bit challenging to interpret it because I didn't fully understand it all. It's especially challenging because Jesus uses similar words in Matthew chapter 5. And then after he uses them, he applies those words to say, So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so we get out our little finger and start swinging around. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So that we hear these verses, oh, that's what they mean. Jesus is telling us we have a wonderful message about him and we need to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, we're going to let it shine. And yet, Jesus here, if you notice in verse 18, didn't say, well, then take here, take care how other people hear what I'm telling you. He's not saying, go out and share this message, which is true and which we should do. Here he's saying, take care how you hear. He's challenging the hearers. Are they listening? Are they responding? Because I think what he's saying here is that he's the light, and he is going to reveal and show everything. This is in line with what Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesied about Jesus in Luke chapter 1 he said whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace and so Jesus here is the light and verse 17 shows that 
He makes everything evident or clear. Everything that is hidden will be brought to the light. You may have walked into your room, it's dark, you flip on the switch, and there, oh, you illumine on the table the beautiful bowl of fruit. But then it also exposes how the kids came in and dropped their dirty socks on the table and just threw their shoes wherever they went. It's illumined, but it's also exposed. And the light does that, it illumines, but as it illumines, it exposes and reveals what's there. And one day, everything will be open to God because he will see and lay it bare. And Jesus' teaching shines that illuminating light, exposing all that is sinful and false. And so in verse 18, Jesus concludes with this warning that they should see how they hear. Because in fact, if they think they have it, but they don't, it's going to be taken away from them. But those who have more will be given. Now we know this in ordinary life. All of you who learned a language in high school, for those of you who use, you know more. Those of you who thought you had, what you thought you have is gone. You know, if we came to you in the language you supposedly learned in high school and said, hey, and spoke to you in that language, you'd be like, oh, I don't really remember anything. I can maybe count to like five still, and I know some generic paradigm somewhere back in my brain. But what we thought we had, if we don't use it, it's goes away. But if you learn the language and continue to use it, you grow and you maybe even become fluent, able to speak. And Jesus is saying, look, if you hear my words and act on them and follow them, then you'll grow in your joy in it and you'll grow in your understanding and then you'll want it more and it'll be the cycle where it's continually getting more and growing and as you grow, you want more and it goes on and on and on. On the flip side, if you think, oh, you know, I've heard this passage before. I know this truth. I, I, you know, I don't really need to listen. I already know that. Well, what you think you know, even that will be taken away. And Jesus is here saying, there can be a danger to hearing God's word. And we have to heed that. If we, week in and week out, hear God's word, and yet do nothing with it, we're living in a dangerous situation. We need to hear, apply, and seek to be growing in our walk with Christ so that it might be deeper and deeper. So how are we responding to the Word of God? As Keith and I make applications from God's Word, are you applying them to your own life? Or do you come in, week in, week out, hear it, and go out with the same thoughts, the same attitudes, the same actions do you come just to have your theological beliefs well yes this church holds the same doctrines i have and every week yep i hear that i got it right or do you come in to be changed and transformed as you hear the word now, this isn't just for you i need every week as i study i go Ooh, i need to change i need to continue to be transformed and submit to god's word and jesus is warning all of us today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. You know, God gave us a really fascinating body part in our ears. Dr. Richard Swenson writes that on a still night, you can hear a cricket chirping over a half mile away. You know, our ears have over a million moving parts 
And amazingly, they can determine both range and direction. So if I hear something, I go, oh, that's pretty close, and it's generally over here. And we can determine this just from our ears. Yet, though we can hear so much and so far, I think George MacDonald is right when he says, noises usually drown out the voice of God. We start hearing even from an early age. At three weeks, a baby in the womb starts developing their ears. By 16 weeks, babies in the womb can react to sounds. And at 28 weeks, their heart rate can increase to their mother's voice. Now, we're not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure some of you have looked down and sung to your womb where your husband's come and talked to the womb. Well, that's not inconsequential because when the baby is born, it can recognize its mother's voice. Though we can recognize our mother's voice, Jesus is asking, do you recognize our heavenly father's voice? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know, we each maybe have different ways we need to hear and respond. As you hear his voice, you may need to give up anger and bitterness at how you feel like he's let your life go. As you hear his voice, you may need to cast your anxieties upon him rather than hanging on to them. As you hear his voice, you may need to trust him for the very first time and stop hardening your heart to him calling you to him. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But Jesus then ends by giving an incredible motivation to do this because God's word reshapes our values. Because Jesus is there and the crowds are coming and the scene has changed. He's now in a house and it's so crowded his own mother and brothers can't get into him. Now some, because they want to hold Mary into this higher estate, will say, well, actually these are Joseph's children before they were married. Well, there's really no evidence for that. That's suppositions brought in to support an argument. Everything from Scripture shows that Mary and Joseph had children together, and Jesus was the eldest of all the siblings. Well, they're there, they want to get in, but they can't, so someone slips in and says, Hey, Jesus, your mom, your mom's outside, your brothers. Now just think about that for a second. Your child's in the house, you mom come, hey, let us in. And think about Jesus' response, because then Jesus says, My mother and brothers, they're not the ones out there. It's whoever does my will. It's whoever, he says, hears the word of God and does it. Jesus is saying that those who matter most are not connected to him by blood, but by obedience to the word of God. You know, this is very similar to words we probably all know from James 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he'll be blessed in his doing Well, James, like Jesus, is warning to not only be hearers, but also doers. And he says, if we only hear Jesus' words and don't put them into action, we're self-deceived. We've all seen self-deceived 
deceived people just go to karaoke night. They're there belting it out. Oh, they're the greatest singer. Actually, they should be beyond America's Got Talent. They should have the recording CD. And they're up there letting everyone know, but they're a little self-deceived. And everyone else, oh, how much longer? They think they're the greatest gift to singing. Well, some of us think, oh, psh, I remember. I had joy. I remember back when I was young, I had so much joy at coming to Christ. And Jesus says, well, that's a type of soil but that's not the soil that really knows me. Don't be self-deceived. Don't just hear, but then not obey. Because the reality of your faith is seen by your deeds. And so Jesus and James are saying, only by hearing and obeying God's word will we be blessed. Blessed in many ways, but one of the greatest here is it shows that we're part of the family. It doesn't make us part of the family. It reveals we're part of the family. Now, we should quickly note, Jesus here is not in any way denigrating family. When he's on the cross, in the most anguish he could suffer, he gives instructions, because he's the eldest son, for how Mary should be taken care of. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they act as though they could skip out on giving to their family because they're giving to the synagogue. You know, Jesus is not in any way saying family is not important. Rather, he's saying that our spiritual family should be of greatest importance. He should be of greatest importance. You know, God's word reshapes us so that what is valued by everyone else is most important becomes secondary to him. And so Jesus shows us that what he honors and desires is not just mentally agreeing with him. He does not honor and desire just strong emotions, maybe a great worship experiences or supernatural acts that we do. He doesn't just honor and desire that we have new decorations in our house or wear Christian shirts. He doesn't even just honor and desire that we have the right biblical worldview and we know our doctrine and we, we hold to biblical morality. He honors and delights when we obey Him, when we follow Him, when we do what He says, when He moves from being a spoke of our life to becoming the hub around which everything else revolves. That he is the center. Well, here Jesus is showing that God's word is powerful. It creates life. It divides and reveals. It demands res response. And it reshapes our values. As Jesus' parable reveals, though, this is something that we must constantly do. The weeds of life are constantly trying to choke it out. In the 1950s, Dr. Helen Rosevere was sent by her missionary organization to reopen a medical clinic in the Congo. It had been used for many years, but for several years they would not been using it. And so she went, ready and eager to reopen it. But as she got there, she was appalled. In just a few years, the buildings that had been used had caved in roofs. The fields that had been cleared and were ready to plant every year crops for the medical missionary group there had been overrun by the jungle and weeds. In just a short time, what had been a vital thing now had to basically be gone all over again because the weeds of life are constantly trying to choke it out. You know, we have those same battles. Don't lean back on, well, yes, I remember. Whew, I remember when I was going to those Bible studies and I was growing, that was great. That should be great now. The weeds of life are constantly trying 
to choke out. Here Jesus says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us open hearts? Would you give us, just like the disciples, ears to hear that we wouldn't just look back on the past, but today we would want to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, that today we would be wanting to hear and follow you more faithfully. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.